thank you for choosing to listen to this week's message from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Milford, Alabama. We're currently walking through our Redeemer series in the book of Ruth. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would challenge and encourage your heart by seeing Christ the Redeemer as our restorer and provider. God bless. If you have a Bible this morning, please open it to Ruth chapter 3, all right? If you don't know where Ruth is or if you haven't been with us lately, Ruth is toward the beginning of your Bible. You go through the first five or six, seven books of the Old Testament, and then you find Ruth. Um, Ruth is after Joshua and Judges. We're going to look at chapter 3 in its entirety this morning, okay? Ruth chapter 3. Uh, we've been looking at Ruth for, uh, I think, three weeks now. This is our fourth week, and I hope that it's been uh, a blessing to you and your family. Today, I hope that this, the same can be said. One of the wor- most important words, and I would probably even suggest it's, it's, it's behind me, okay? The most important word in Ruth is the word Redeemer. We're going to talk about that word a lot this morning. And because of that, I have to start and say what this word means, okay? The word to redeem, it, in our culture, you can kind of understand it in a couple of different ways. If I were to say, yeah, I made a mistake, and so next time I'm going to redeem myself, That means sort of like to make up for something, but that's not the proper way to understand that word redeem. If you were to understand it from a biblical perspective, you'd say, okay, what does it mean that that Jesus is our redeemer? Well, it would mean, you may may say, well, it means that he's our our savior, I think, but really it's it's even more nuanced and, and sort of different than that. It's not just making up for or saving. Literally what we're talking about this morning, to redeem means to purchase, it means to purchase. <clears throat> when I was a kid and I would go to Wednesday night church, I would always buy a Coke. And then sometimes, I don't think they do this anymore. And some of you younger people are going to be like, for real? You unscrew the cap and sometimes on it would say, redeem for a free Coke. And so you take it to a gas station and then you turn it in and they just give you a free Coke. You'd be like, okay, I didn't even have to pay for this. And it seems like it's free. It's free to you, but you're just redeeming it with something other than money, right? You're buying it with this cap. Now, the reason I say that is to say that to redeem very simply at its very foundation just means that. It means to buy. It means to purchase. Okay, so what does it mean that we're studying that word redeemer in Ruth? It's the most important word in this book. Widowed families, and we're looking at a couple of them and one a whole family throughout this book. Widowed families needed a redeemer. In other words, they needed a buyer. They needed a purchaser. Naomi and Ruth had become widowed. Naomi's husband and her sons died. One of those sons was married to her daughter, Ruth. And so Elimelech, that's her husband, Naomi's husband, his property, his birthright is going to be forfeited unless they have a buyer, unless they have a redeemer. This word for redeemer, you may have it in your translation as a kinsman redeemer. And that's an important word because it's a related person that is a redeemer. It's a male relative who, according to God's law, the first five books of the Old Testament, had the privilege and the responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble or in danger or in need. The literal term for kinsman redeemer designates one person who delivers or rescues or redeems property or a person. Now the person who's going to be the redeemer throughout this book and in this passage is a guy named Boaz. We talked about him last week. Boaz is a wealthy man, a field owner, and he has this confrontation, this moment where he meets Ruth, and they have this moment, and then the story is going to continue today. But Boaz is the redeemer in this story. But there is, there's a redeemer whose hand is at work more intimately than that of Boaz. And it's the hand that we've been looking at throughout the whole book of, the, of Ruth. And that is that the hand of God is at work in this book. He is the redeemer. 
You see, the real love story in this book is not Boaz and Ruth, but God's love for those that needed a rescuing redeemer. In other words, a buyer in their trouble. And so this morning, we're going to rest in that. We're going to rest in that God has become our redeemer in our trouble. All right? So let's look at it. Ruth chapter 3. It's going to be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. But I hope that you do. We're going to look verse by verse through this passage, okay? Ruth 3 in its entirety says this. Follow along with me as I read. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, that's Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For, for, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known for that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she, so she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle it, settle the matter today. Now, we're not going to have time to get to every layer and every aspect of this passage, but we are going to get to quite a bit of it as we walk through it together. We saw last week that Naomi and Ruth were poor women at this point. They came back as widows, and so they didn't have a lot of things. Uh, they went gleaning, or, or, or Ruth went gleaning, which means she went to go gather leftovers in a random field. And as we saw last week, it just so happened that that field belonged to a very special and significant person. I say it just so happened. It was a coincidence. God led Ruth to the specific field of a distant relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Ruth then finds favor with this guy, his name Boaz. And through Boaz, God provides for the needs of Naomi and Ruth. But at the heart of the book of Ruth is a need culturally greater than even food and shelter. And that is a family lineage that continues through childbearing. More important than their food 
was that their family lineage would continue. And so what we have on our hands here, up until this point, is a tragedy. The story is a tragedy. Because this man's family, Elimelech, and these women, their family is going to be eradicated. Because there's no man that can give them children to push forward their lineage. It's a tragedy of a story of two widows. Though God has provided food, there is still an insurmountable void that Ruth is a widow and Elimelech's lineage is not continuing. And so the author reminds us of this. Look at the very last verse that we looked at last week in chapter 2, verse 23. After this provision has been made, verse 23 says, So she, that's Ruth, kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning, that's gathering those things, the the leftovers, until the end of barley and wheat harvest. But listen to this this part right here. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The reason I say that is that that little phrase is there to remind you that that part of her life still hasn't been provided for. She still lives with her mother-in-law. The big problem is still looming over her head. And so the author shows us the proposal to meet this remaining need. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. So because she still lived with her mother-in-law, verse 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? This is a cultural way of saying, Should I not, not fulfill this last need of yours? Should I not give you a husband? And so in chapter 2, Boaz wishes blessing from above on Ruth. We looked at that last week. He says, Ruth, because of who you are, your care for Naomi, let God give you reward and let him give you refuge. And so God has given reward. He's given food, again, through Boaz. And now he's going to bring refuge, again, through Boaz in a very strange scenario that's going to require quite a bit of explanation. The last part of uh, verse 2. It says, uh, so is not Boaz our relative with who, uh, with whose young women you were? And then it says, see, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, I'm just going to take a gamble here and say that you probably don't know a whole lot, culturally speaking, about what happens in this passage. That makes two of us, all right? There's a lot going on here that I'm going to have to explain so that we can get to a deeper understanding of what's happening. What's going on here is that Boaz has gone to this threshing floor, a place east of the city, and he's catching wind from the west. And so this this practice that he's doing is he's got this this harvest in his hands, but it's not cleaned up. Uh, and you know, whenever you get food, whether it be gardening or hunting, you have to clean the food before it's uh, able to be cooked and eaten. And so the same is true here. They have this harvest, but he has to clean it up. The practice that he would do is that this wind would come in, he'd throw the crop in the air, and it would essentially, the wind would help it shed the, the lighter part and the part that doesn't belong on the food. And so it would fall off and go with the wind, and then it would come down into his hands or on the ground, and it would then be cleaned up. And this is what he's doing. He's winnowing on the threshing floor. More important than what he is doing, though, is where he is doing it. People likely were around. He wasn't the only one doing this at the threshing floor as he was, but... This is a place where he would stay alone with his crop. And so Boaz would be sleeping by his pile of grain, which we'll see in just a moment, to guard it through the night after a very long day of work. Now this next part is intended by the author to make you raise your eyebrows a bit. So if you did, when we read it through, mission accomplished. It's weird, all right? So let's look at it. Look at verses 3 through 5. Naomi tells her, he says, she says, Wash therefore and anoint yourself. In other words, Put on makeup, clean yourself up, put on perfume, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, again, in secret. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. 
And so Ruth replies, all that you say, I will do. Well, first, let me just say this. This is terrible advice, okay? This is terrible, unwise advice from Naomi. And what we've already seen in Naomi, that shouldn't come as a surprise, right? Now, we're not really sure what her intentions are, but I believe that Naomi's intentions were innocent, but careless and out of desperation. She just said, let me find rest for you. Let me find you a husband. And so she gives us absolutely terribly unwise advice to go and be with a, alone with a man in the middle of the night and even make a suggestive uh, remark to him essentially and say, and, and then just wait what he does. Wait and see what he does next. That is terrible, terrible advice. All right. But that's not the heart of what we're supposed to understand in the passage. We've got to understand a few things. First of all, she tells her to go to a threshing floor. As I mentioned just a moment ago, Boaz would be alone. Although there would be people around at some point, he eventually would be alone by himself with his crop. She then says to go and lie down and then uncover his feet. Now, literally translated, this says, go and uncover the place of his feet. And so some people have suggested that this is a euphemism for sexual contact. But number one, there's absolutely zero evidence for this. And number two, it would be completely out of place in the story because both Ruth and Boaz have been painted very clearly as honorable and faithful and especially what follows next. The author would tell us if there was anything sexual that occurred, but what happens next is the opposite of that. It's honorable. It's faithful. I mean, Boaz even brings the name of God into the story. So it's very clear here that there's nothing sexual that's happening about this. But all of this sexual, all of this is sexually suggestive language. And uh, um, this is a, a weird thing for me to say, but just hear me. It's intentionally so. The author is, is telling a story and they want it to sound like, I don't know, what's about to happen here? The author is doing this on purpose. And so the reader, you and I are wondering, is this story of hope going to turn into a story of tragedy? Okay, does that make sense? We're supposed to be left wondering, what's going to happen here? But this is supposed to be this way. Is this story of hope going to be a story of tragedy? And so it heightens the drama. It's told this way by the author so that the reader is under great suspense. Essentially, the reader is saying kind of internal questions. Oh, will the, will the worthy Moabite Ruth prove to just be another promiscuous foreigner? Will the worthy Boaz fall and prove to just be a weak man? Will this story of hope become a story of tragedy? It's intentionally written this way. It will be very possible for Boaz to misread the situation, but still, Ruth does exactly as she is instructed with one very, very, very important exception. And that is that she speaks and makes her intentions very clear. Now, Naomi never says to speak and tell her what's going on, but she does it anyway. And the reason why is because her intention is that she is seeking a redeemer, her redeemer. And so if you're taking notes this morning, that's going to be, and you've already seen our title behind me, Meeting Rescue with Rest. There's two ways that we see this in the passage with two questions I think that we can apply. Number one, is my Redeemer enough for me? Is my Redeemer enough for me? Meeting rescue with rest. Is my Redeemer enough for me? We're going to walk through this passage. I'm going to let you see kind of where I'm getting at with this. 
The next thing that happens is the events, and we're not going to read verses 6 and 7, but the events unfold exactly as Naomi said they would. Boaz had been at the threshing floor all day, and he is burnt out. He's working all day. He'd finished eating and drinking, and he was in a good mood. By the way, you may be wondering this. It says that his heart was merry, but there's nothing in this passage that suggests drunkenness. Really, again, because of the character of of Boaz, the opposite is probably true, because Boaz is constantly portrayed as an upright man. And so the situation at hand is that he's been working all day, all day, then he had a solid meal and he laid down against his bounty while gazing at the stars until he falls asleep. That's kind of what's going on here. And those are the details that we're meant to focus on. Ruth then approaches quietly and again uncovers his feet, which is this really weird, suggestive thing, but it's there to heighten the drama. What's going to happen next? She lays down at his feet. By the way, remember, it's very, very dark outside. It, he, they weren't, they didn't have the night light plugged in, okay? There wasn't the street light overhead. The, it's dark. It's really, really dark, and he doesn't even know who is laying at his feet, which is what we're going to see next. Look at verses 8 and 9. At midnight, the man was startled, and he turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's interesting that he woke up at midnight. Maybe a breeze catches his feet. I'm not really sure. It happens to me all the time. We sleep with the fan on, and if my you know, body gets cold, I wake up. That Maybe that's what happened here. But the reason that Naomi instructed her to catch him after a good meal is because she thought it best to ask such a huge, profound request of this man while Boaz was in a good mood. You guys know this to be true, right? You've probably seen enough TV or movies to know, like, or even in your life, maybe your kids did this, and they come up to you and they say, you know, Mom, you look really pretty today. And your reaction is, what do you want? Right? Or is he on the TV show, Dad, that's a really nice tie. You look good today, man. He's like, do you need money or something? What's, what is this all about? But this is what's happening, is that she wants him to be in a good mood, merry heart, so that he, she's asking him this profound request at a good time. But I find it funny that she seems to have waited so late into the night before asking. Maybe you wonder, is, is Naomi or is, uh, is, is Ruth nervous? What's going on here? He's being awoken a few hours into sleep. And that isn't the best time to, to get someone in their best mood. I don't know about you waking me up a couple hours into my REM cycle. You're probably not going to get the greatest side of me, but that's what happens. It reminds me, as I've told some of you guys this story, uh, I've never slept walking except for one time. I was sleepwalking. I walked downstairs after a very long gaming session. All day I played a game called Mortal Kombat. Wouldn't suggest it, wouldn't endorse it. I was a small child. I was probably in third grade. I've been playing this game, this video game, all day with my friends, and so I in a slumber. I stumble down the stairs and I go into my mom and dad's bedroom and I go up to my mom's side of the bed and I say, I wake her up and like her eyes just go boom. And I just asked her a question because I was sleepwalking, you know, and I said, mom, how do you do a flip on Mortal Kombat? I didn't get the best side of her because the next words out of her mouth were, son, Go to bed or I'll kill you. <laughs> anyway, it's interesting the way that this story goes, but she does catch Boaz in a right mood. But the most important part of this moment is not in those details, but rather in the question itself. Look at the second part of verse 9 again. He asks, who are you? Remember, it's dark. And she answers him. She says, I'm Ruth. They've already met. They've spent six to eight weeks or so together during this barley harvest season. She says, spread your wings over your servant, 
for you are a redeemer. Literally the term there that she used or the phrase spread your wings is the cultural turn of phrase that means cover me with the corner of your robe. Okay, I know that sounds really strange, but she says cover me with the corner of your robe or spread, me, spread your wings. It's a cultural way of saying cover me with your robe. Now this is the rough equivalent, and I can't go into the details, but this is a rough equivalent of a sort of informal marriage proposal. And it's more like, it's not necessarily Ruth proposing marriage. That would already be weird, but it's sort of like Ruth saying, will you ask me, will you marry me? Like, this is still up to you, but will you ask me? (laughs) I wouldn't suggest it, ladies. Or don't go up to your man and say, it's about time, right? This is kind of what Ruth is saying, is saying, will you will you pursue me in marriage? So it's a proposal, and yet it's not the proposal. But it's still a daunting proposal that she has made. She says, spread your wings over me, or cover me with the corner of your robe. Now the reason this is a, a really neat suggestion that she, or a request that she makes, is because of chapter 2, verse 12. Look back just real quick at chapter 2, verse 12, at what Boaz says to her whenever he pronounces blessing upon her. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done, again, to Naomi, and caring for her, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at this, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What he said in that passage is, may God cover you with his robe. But what he's really saying is, may God give you protection and provision. May he be your provider. May he be your restorer. And now Ruth is essentially saying the same turn of phrase. You said, may God cover me with his wings. May he provide. May he restore me. And now what I'm saying to you is, may God do through you what you asked of him. Boaz, will you be my protector? Will you be my provider? Will you be my restorer? Now listen, just like in our culture, for this woman to ask this to this man is extremely countercultural. It's very strange. It's inappropriate even. First of all, she's a Moabite woman, which have a reputation of being promiscuous and just harlots, to be quite frank. This is a weird request. Not only that, was it weird for a woman to say this to a man, but it was weird for a younger person to say this to an older person, and it was weird for a field worker to say this to a field owner, and yet all of those things, check, check, check. Boaz then had no legal obligation, but he had a legal privilege. In other words, she is asking him, you're not required to do this, but by your grace and kindness, will you marry me? Will you redeem me? Look at verses 10 and 11. And he said, May you be blessed by the daughter or by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Verse eleven. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. There's a phrase in this passage, these two verses, that happens twice back to back, and it's the phrase, my daughter. Now, culturally, I don't expect you to know this, but culturally, this would be a way that Boaz would, would state, I understand that your intentions are not, I'm just going to be real with you, they're not sexual, okay? My daughter is a way of saying, this isn't a, a risque situation. The story doesn't turn into a sexual failure and into a tragedy. The way that he reciprocates this term, my daughter, is we're, we're of the same mindset here. There's something far greater than some one-night stand that is happening. And the reason that he accepts her and says, I'm going to do exactly what you required of me, is what he says here. He says, because you have desired me. She desired him. He says, this kindness is better. 
And what he's referring to is, it was better than the way that you cared for Naomi, her widowed mother-in-law. It meant a great deal to Boaz that he was admired by Ruth. She could have found a younger, better looking, richer man. The implication in this passage, by the way, is for one, that Ruth was a a, a big woman. She was strong. She carries a lot of weight, a long way to get to her home. But that Boaz was an older man and he wasn't much of a looker. He was an older guy. Yeah, he had a, a property, land and everything, but he wasn't much of a looker. But he had a heart of gold. And Naomi desired and Ruth desired a righteous redeemer. In, in considering how to apply this passage, I think that there's something here that we can hone in on. Church, there are things in this life that aim to entice you, but nothing will ever satisfy your heart like your redeemer. There are things in this life that seem so sweet, they seem precious, and they seem desirous. But there's nothing in life that will satisfy you in your heart like your Redeemer. Social media, it tastes sweet. It promises validation, but it will always leave you unfulfilled. Sports are fun. They're exciting. And sports may numb a purposeful life, but the penetrating reality that they're meaningless will eventually catch up to you. The praise of man seems satisfactory, but it only gives temporary satisfaction but leaves you striving for something that you will never possess. Obsessing over your self-image and your appearance, it seems like a cool thing. It becomes a daily task, but as they say, Father Time is undefeated, and that idol will crumble, leaving you devastated. It doesn't satisfy. And suddenly, you reach a point in your life where you're left with a stunning realization that you've been striving for fulfillment in countless vanities and Christ has just never been enough for you. With fleeting days, you've done nothing but wake up, eat, go to school or go to work, be with your friends, be with your family, scroll through your phone for a couple of hours and then you go to bed feeling bad about all the things that you've done that day and not reading your Bible and praying enough. I've been there. And I can speak on that because I know what that feels like. Because those things are never enough. They leave you unfulfilled. And they leave you with a hole in your heart that says, there's got to be something more than this. There were luring pleasures around Ruth, but only Boaz could provide true restoration of her hurt and provision for her deepest needs. Church, listen to me. You are surrounded by luring pleasures. And oftentimes they're harmless things, but they are meaningless. We oftentimes talk about how we need revival. Personally, I need revival. This church, we need revival. Our country, we need revival. But the greatest obstacle of revival in this church, in your heart, in this country, it's not the LGBT, it's not social media, it's not the political left, it's not mainstream media, it's not abortion. The greatest obstacle of revival in your heart is that you care way more about feeding your desire for the meaninglessness of things than feeding your desire for God. That's where revival begins. No one can drag you away from intimacy with God. No one. No president, no senate, no supreme court, no person at your school. No one can drag you away from intimacy with God 
But the thing is, we do a pretty good job of that on our own. The question is not whether travel ball or Facebook or designer brands are bad. The question is, is Christ enough? The other things will just leave you empty. Meeting rescue with rest, is he enough? The second way that we see this with another question in this passage is, do I live life full? Do I live life full? There's still a hang-up in the story. Before Boaz can officially redeem Ruth and Naomi and restore their family, because Boaz isn't the first one in line to be the redeemer. And so the story kind of reaches a little bit of a hang-up. Look at verses 12 through 14. Boaz says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz has her stay the night, which again may make you raise your eyebrows. But what he says here in the literal verb is, why don't you lodge here? It's not a sexual term. He's saying just sleep right there. Surely he's saying this as a protective measure, not to be in danger of traveling home. So she then leaves before sunrise. Reason for that is to not have her reputation and his reputation be unfairly tarnished. And so Ruth would be then devastated to read or hear what happens with what Boaz says right here. She would be devastated to learn that after this humiliating countercultural proposal, it's embarrassing that there is still a chance that it could all be in vain, that there could be another redeemer. But Boaz is going to give her something of an assurance. She said, he says, if he is not willing. Now, in my translation, it just says if he's not willing. But the word there is so much stronger than just will. What he's saying is, if this guy, this guy closer than me, if he's not gung-ho thrilled about it, if he's not pumped at the prospect of redeeming you, then I'll do it myself. So the Ruth would be devastated at this. But Boaz says that if he is not willing, then I'm going to do it myself. What he's saying is if he's not thrilled about it, if he is not gung-ho excited about it, and then he gives her a gift. So he gives her an assurance, and then he gives her this gift. Look at verse 15. And he said, Bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. To give you an idea of what six measures of barley are, this is about 80 pounds of barley. This is a lot of stuff, okay? A lot of weight. And so it even says that he put it on her. It's very heavy, but he puts it on her back to be carried. Look at verses 16 through 18. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Boaz sends Ruth away with a heavy measure of provision. This is a promise of what's to come, which is what we saw at the end of verse 13. He says, I will redeem you. He says, As the Lord lives, I'm going to see to it that it's done. And so he gives her this promise. 
Now, I could be reading a little bit more into this than is here, and certainly that's possible, but I'm not the only commentator that thinks this. He sends Ruth away with six measures of barley. Six is an important number in the Bible, and so is the number seven. Six is the number of incompletion, whereas seven is the number of completion. We read about this in creation, right? That God created in six days, but it wasn't fulfilled, completed, until God rested, and then the week was finished, right? Six was the number of incompletion, whereas seven completed this thing. When you combine that with the promise of verse 13, it seems to me that Boaz is giving this barley as a down payment of the full provision yet to come. Church, isn't this what Christ has done for us in the gospel? A provision, a down payment. Looking forward to the provision that is yet to come. We sing a song about this. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Oh, what a down payment. Oh, what a temporary provision of what is yet to come. Sometimes we talk about this, the already and not yet of what it means to walk in Christ. Already, if you are in Christ, if you have repented and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness, the confession, the the remission of your sin, if you have done that, then listen to me say this, you have already been made alive. You have already been brought from death to life. And though you may die, as Jesus says in John 14, yet you shall live. Because you have already been spiritually resurrected, and yet this is only a foretaste of what is to come. You have been raised, and yet you have not yet physically been raised. A foretaste of resurrection that anticipates our future resurrection. The Spirit of God is what He gives us as His down payment in us, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 says this, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And he has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee of what's to come. Wanting to ensure Ruth that she isn't going home empty, he sent her with a down payment that the matter would soon be settled. Six measures of barley that would soon be settled. Church, you are not made full by the money in your bank account, the food in your cabinet, the children in your home, the grades on your report card, or the likes on your photo. You are made full by a Redeemer who loves you, who provides for you, who restored you, and who rescued you. You aren't made full by the vanities. You are made full by the person and work of Christ. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Completion. There's fullness. So how do we apply that? There's fullness in Christ. How do we apply that? We have been given a down payment of what is to come. An already resurrection in anticipation of what is to come. So my instruction to you, church, is to wait eagerly with joy and anticipation of future hope. To wait eagerly. God has done so much, and yet we are waiting for what is yet to be done. It's a call to missional living. I heard one person say this, and I think this is fantastic. The next Billy Graham may be passed out on a dorm room floor right now. Isn't that a wonderful call to missions? Guys, we are waiting eagerly for the final provision to be made. And we are to be called to be missionally living. 
It means that we are to be certain, as, as Naomi instructs Ruth here, do not, she says, verse uh, 18, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Guys, this is exactly what Christ is up to right now. He's not resting. He's at work. You are here in this place out of, out of evidence that he is at work. And our prayer this morning is that we would be sensitive to that and that we would be certain and joyful that this life is not it, but that the matter will be settled soon. There's one more thing that I want you to see in this passage. One of the things that Boaz says in this, in this word is that there is a redeemer nearer than I. I don't think it's a stretch to think that this is a double meaning. You know, in the passage, it makes sense that there's a redeemer nearer than I. We're going to look at that next week. But isn't that, hasn't that been the case throughout the whole story? Yeah, Boaz is a redeemer, but there is a redeemer who has been orchestrating events that has been far nearer than Boaz. Guys, God is the redeemer that throughout the story has been nearer than this gentleman. The real love story in this book is not Boaz and Ruth, but it's God's love for his straying sheep. And the fullest form of this love was in the person and the work of Jesus, who, by the way, redeems the captive. Redeems, buys, purchases the prisoner. Liberates the captive, sets the prisoner free. Guys, that's exactly what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross and emptied the grave. He redeemed those who needed rescue. And so today, I need you to understand that just like we see in Ruth, this unworthy foreigner who needs rescue, she asks, cover me, cover me with your wing, welcome me with your provision, cover me, welcome me into your family. In Christ alone, God has welcomed us into his family. And he won't just wrap you in a robe. He will clothe you in righteousness. What greater response than that is to meet rescue with rest. Let's pray. We want to thank you for listening to this week's message. We would love for you to join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and love above all else. For more information, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thespringhillbaptist.